welcome to the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor Podcast. I'm Joel Swider, and I'm an attorney with Hall Render. Today, we'll be talking with Ken Gacka, Senior Director and Analytical Manager for Healthcare Ratings at S&P Global Ratings, and Allison Bretz, Associate Director at S&P Global Ratings. We're going to be talking about S&P's 2019 outlook for the U.S. not-for-profit healthcare sector, uh, which is expected to be released early next year. Ken and Allison, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having us. So walk me through the types of services that S&P provides to health system clients. Of course, today we're focused on the nonprofit health sector, but I assume this process would be similar in the for-profit sector as well. Um, let's say a hospital or health system comes to you, says, you know, we want to issue tax-exempt debt. We're going to pay for a new hospital building. Take us from there. Sure. Thanks, Joel, and thanks for having us. So to give you some context, S&P's not-for-profit healthcare team is a part of uh, S&P's U.S. public finance practice, and U.S. public finance issues ratings on over 22,000 uh, entities across the U.S. The not-for-profit healthcare team focuses on uh, the, the healthcare specialties, and we cover a wide range of hospitals and health systems across the U.S., we have over 500 organizations that we that we rate, and they range in size uh, and range in uh, services offered. So we rate organizations with revenue bases as high as $75 billion to those as small as $30 million. So we have a wide range of uh, clients that we, we interact with. And you have all shapes and sizes in between large multi, uh, multi-facility health systems, critical access hospitals, academic medical centers, integrated delivery systems that have both a provider arm and an insurance arm. So we cover a, a wide range of, of organizations and we find that to be very important as we analyze the sector and keep our finger on the pulse of the, of the trends and emerging credit risks that, uh, that may be out there. So our team is comprised of 16 healthcare specialists located across the, the U.S. And the, when we interact with our clients, you're right, it is typically tied to uh, a debt issuance. So organizations will come to market and we're a key part of, uh, of that process, giving our opinion of the creditworthiness of the, of the issuer. And that starts really a ongoing relationship. So every year then we speak with the client get an update on their financial position, their strategies, and so forth, and determine whether uh, the rating needs updated, either upgraded or downgraded or through an outlook revision. So it's really part of an ongoing relationship that we have with each of our clients uh, once we first initiate the rating. So, and I suppose that depending on on your uh, analysis, then they that may affect the borrower's uh, interest rate or or the maybe the amount of debt that they're able to issue is that right or what 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 is kind of the next step after that so yes that is the rating is one piece of information that goes into determining uh, interest rates that that an organization may have to pay for for their debt and I find often uh, as well that the the rating serves as a good benchmark for an organization. In fact, we have some organizations that don't have rated debt that carry an S&P rating so that they have sort of that discipline that comes with the process and so that they can compare themselves to, to others in, um, in their peer group across a, a standard methodology like we have. Sure. 
So I guess, Allison, could you give us some more background as to, you know, we're looking at the sector outlook. What, what, what are these outlooks and what are they designed to do? Sure. So the sector outlook is a piece that we release at the beginning of every year that summarizes our expectations for the not-for-profit sector. Uh, the outlook encompasses our view of the whole sector and where we think the balance of rating actions might lean for the for the upcoming year. And it's an opportunity for us to address the big picture, uh, as opposed to much of our work, which covers individual hospitals or systems. So it's really our way of stepping back, looking at the sector as a whole and saying to the market, here's where we think ratings might fall next year. And based on what we've learned in the last year, here's why we think that. So and you're primarily in in terms of the raw data that you're looking at for the outlook, I, I assume you're going to look primarily to the hospitals or health systems, whoever your clients are, who you've been examining throughout the year. Is that right? Right. So we look at financial data that's publicly released, you know, audits and interim financials, as well as data that's shared with us from these, these hospitals and health systems. We look at our conversations with the management teams and the materials that they've provided to us. And since this is a more holistic perspective, we also take a look at the industry as a whole. Uh, we look at industry trends beyond just hospitals and health systems, uh, state and national legislative moves or things that we might see upcoming, and the U.S. economy as a whole. So all the things that kind of play a role in shaping the sector beyond just the players that we work with. And and so who's the primary audience then for, for your, well, let's, again, talking about the outlook in particular, who's kind of the primary audience for that? Our audience is the investor community, so the individuals that read our reports. But as Ken alluded to earlier, our hospitals and health systems also read the outlook with great interest, since, of course, they can frequently get bogged down in their own individual issues. And so I think it's a helpful perspective for them to look at how we're viewing the industry as a whole and what we're hearing from other players in the market. So as we're looking toward 2019, I was reviewing your 2018 outlook, and we're now 20 or 11 months into the year, 10 months since you released the 2018 outlook. I'd like to look at some of the topics that you had forecast as being significant factors that contributed to your outlook and maybe get a feel for whether those predictions really came to fruition or whether we're going to see maybe some changes in those particular areas for next year. Starting with M&A activity within the sector, you had mentioned in your 2018 outlook that M&A activity remains heightened within the sector and that that generally supports credit quality depending on merger effectiveness. Could you explain that a little bit? How does, how does the heightened M&A activity support credit quality? Sure. So, you know, I might take a step back with this one and talk a little bit first about the reasons why we're seeing so much M&A. And I think then that'll dovetail nicely with, uh, with the question of supporting credit quality. So M&A in healthcare has been around for a long period of time. You know, we've been seeing uh, mergers and acquisitions for, for decades. Now, I think the reasons why you see M&A has evolved over the last several years in the past, I think, you know, the players were often very clear it was going to be a large, strong health system acquiring a perhaps struggling, smaller standalone hospital. You were going to see the M&A driven by uh, desire to scale up so that you could take uh, advantages of uh, economies of scale so you have more leverage with your payers and suppliers. What we're seeing now is, you know, those those reasons are still very important, but we're also seeing that these 
these uh, mergers and acquisitions are driven by competency-based needs, so organizations that may be looking to add a service line or uh, a geography that they don't have that's important to their long-term strategy. Also, I think there is uh, a real play uh, based on the uh, nature of the operating environment being difficult. I think a lot of organizations do see the need in the time of tightening margins to be able to partner with a larger organization to, um, you know, be able to expand or to invest in IT infrastructure, which is very costly. So when we see some of these organizations um, pair up with uh, uh, another organization, we often see the smaller troubled credit maybe getting bought up by a large organization still today. And in fact, as we look at our rating actions this year, we've got quite a few that were upgraded just by virtue of being acquired by uh, another organization. So for instance, Presence Health, a triple B category credit was acquired by Ascension this year, and that was an upgrade. So that sort of, uh, you know, lends to one of those reasons why one may consider partnering with another organization. Sure. So I'm going to ask a dumb question. If if we see kind of a general increase in terms of credit quality because of, as you mentioned, you know, you might have an entity with weaker credit quality being acquired by a higher rated uh, hospital or system. I mean, is is there any sense in which you want to maintain a bell curve or you, you know, if we, it, it, does it look bad if we've got all of all of these tax exempt hospitals having very high credit ratings and very few in the lower, you know, categories, does, or does that, does that not even really come into play? You know, it, it muddies the numbers a little bit uh, because you do, if you did look at our, our rating distribution over time, you would see uh, a pretty clear bell curve. And oftentimes those on the far right of the curve, so the non-investment grade credits, are acquired and you know that double b rating goes away and it becomes an a if it's taken on by a stronger organization so i don't think it's a bad thing but it muddies the water a little bit on kind of mutes the how how loud the view is of the negativity in the sector so another issue that you had discussed in your 2018 outlook was legislative and administrative risks. You had said that they would remain ongoing and that the ACA repeal and replace initiatives and the likelihood uh, would uh, would also impact and as well as the likelihood of raising uninsured rates. What are we predicting for next year? Obviously, we've just had an election. Any differences in that category? Uh, yeah, I would say that the election did uh, sort of present some changes. I think we've identified a few key factors. With Democrats now in control of the House, I don't think we expect further repeal and replace legislative efforts. We did see several of those over the last two years, but I think that will cease now that Republicans no longer control the House. Uh, With that said, I think we do expect some movement from Washington still that could decrease insurance coverage. There's been a lot of conversation about allowance of short-term or skinny insurance plans, which may not fully cover basic benefits, meaning that even if individuals appear to be insured, they still end up paying out of pocket or not being able to pay for many services. Uh, we're also seeing support of more stringent requirements for Medicaid, Medicaid work requirements, et cetera, which may result in lower coverage. But on a state level, we did see voters in Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah vote to expand Medicaid. 
Uh, we saw general improvement in ratings in states that initially expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, and so also think expansion will be generally positive for hospitals and health systems operating in those states, Utah, Idaho, and Nebraska. We'll be watching to see how quickly the expansions are implemented and the ultimate size of the newly covered populations. But I think that's generally a credit positive for, for operators in those states. So overall, I think the election was mostly positive from a healthcare perspective, but we will continue to see some push out of Washington to decrease insurance coverage, maybe not through explicit legislation, but through some of these efforts at the margins. Yeah, it's interesting to think that sometimes gridlock is is a good thing uh, when it comes to, you know, not seeing seismic shifts in, in some of these policies. Another point that you made in your outlook last year was looking at non-traditional players and their significance in the market. You had said at that time, you didn't really see that happening in within the year. In other words, by 2018 year end, does that sort of remain for 2019 too? Or is this going to be the year we start seeing some more shifts in terms of those non-traditional players, Amazon, CVS, Aetna, those types of, of, of entities? I think we're expecting this to not be a major issue in 2019 as it, as it has not been in 2018, at least for our hospitals. Uh, that said, we are, I think, likely to see some more tangible things. The CVS Aetna merger was recently approved. The Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan, Amazon company has named its CEO and seems to be forming a, a structure. So 2019 should provide some clarity on strategy from these non-traditional players. But I don't think we expect yet to see them really eat into the market of our traditional providers and hospitals. We are seeing more movement to non-traditional revenue streams from our hospitals. You know, I think inpatient revenue used to be their bread and butter and where they made most of their money. And that's really no longer the case. We're seeing much more revenue driven from outpatient ventures, other joint ventures that are you know, not necessarily the traditional heads and beds that hospitals have provided. And I think we do expect that to continue in 2019 and to see competition from, you know, ambulatory surgical companies, uh, urgent care and other providers that maybe do provide care outside of the traditional hospital setting, but maybe not from these disruptors that have been making the news so much. I think that might be a little bit slower to move into the industry. And you're talking, Allison, too. I mean, do you think that there's any sort of siphoning off of some of the um, maybe healthier patients. I, in our own office, you know, every year we've got to get a physical for insurance purposes, or, you know, gives us a, a benefit in terms of our insurance rate. And some people will go and get their physical at, let's say a Walgreens or a CVS, or, you know, one of these kind of dock in the box type places. I mean, is that, are we going to see any kind of siphoning off of some of the healthier patients in the in these non-traditional settings, which I guess would in turn leave hospitals with the older, sicker patients, which presumably are less profitable. Any oh, I, any uh, truth to that? Absolutely, there's truth to that, and I think that's already very much happening, and has created some of the revenue pressure that is reflected in our medians and and the you know decrease in operating margins over the last few years. And we have seen hospitals and health systems invest more meaningfully in getting a piece of that pie. So. They're buying up urgent cares. They're partnering through joint ventures with urgent care providers. Some of them are putting their own clinics into Walmart, CVS, Walgreens, et cetera. So they're really making an effort to get a foot in the door and provide services in more convenient, lower cost settings of care because they recognize that many young, healthy, commercially insured individuals don't want to come to the hospital for basic services. And if they don't need to, 
they'll seek it in a more convenient setting. And so I think going forward, the providers we expect to be most successful are those that are able to provide care in more creative ways and in different settings than just the traditional hospital. So in terms of some of the raw data that you analyzed for your outlook, I looked at the, at, toward the end of, of your 2018 outlook, you have several charts and you showed an increase in the 2017 data regarding the number of ratings, downgrades, and revisions as compared with recent years. And there were also more negative than positive downgrades and revisions. Has that trend continued so far in 2018? Yes, it has. So through the first nine months of 2018, we're seeing a similar trend with slightly more negative rating actions and downgrades. Uh, so we've had 29 negative outlook changes and 21 positive outlook changes. And of the 20, 279 rating actions we've had for the first nine months of the year, about 7.5% were upgrades and 10.4% were downgrades. So that trend has continued, but it's very important to note that 82% of those rating actions were affirmations. So Overall, there is tremendous underlying stability of the sector, and that really reflects the stable outlook we had coming into the year. We have seen more downgrades than upgrades, more negative rating actions, but overall, you know, four out of five rating actions or a little more than that were affirmations reflecting that, that real underlying stability in these credits. Another interesting chart that you guys had published in your 2018 outlook was days cash on hand. It looked like that had been increasing while long-term debt and capitalization percentages had been decreasing. Do you have any idea why that is and whether that might have an impact on, for example, building and construction in the future? Days cash has been increasing for a few reasons. I think over the last few years, we've had very strong investment markets. And not-for-profit hospitals, not universally, but generally tend to carry fairly large investment portfolios. And so as the markets have done well, they've seen real growth in liquidity. So that's helped support growth of days cash on hand. At the same time, we have seen construction slow down somewhat across the industry. Large projects do continue, but I think there are fewer than there were several years ago. We're not seeing as many you know, major towers or large-scale patient bed construction projects. And instead, investment is a little bit more strategic. So many hospitals and health systems, as I alluded to before, are looking to invest in smaller-scale outpatient facilities, either on their main campuses or in the markets where they're located. And then we're also seeing investment in IT. So not physical improvements to buildings, but investments in software systems and other technology that helps them remain competitive and become more efficient. So one last chart I wanted to kind of focus on from your 2018 outlook, you had shown that nonprofit median operating margins fell sharply, pretty sharply anyway, from 2015 to 2016. And S&P put out a Another set of medians in July of 2018, which showed a, a continuance of that trend. Um, to the untrained eye, this looks bad. I mean, is this a red flag? I'm not sure it's a red flag, but I do think it's a trend that we expect to continue. It's one that we've seen for the last few years as, as operating margins continue to decline. Revenue growth has really plateaued. Uh, reimbursement continues to worsen. So payer mix deterioration, which includes, you know, movement from patients on commercial insurance to patients on Medicare, as well as weaker reimbursement from those commercial payers is affecting that overall revenue base. And then on the expense side, we're seeing really significant growth in supply costs, especially for pharmaceuticals, specialty pharmaceuticals in particular, and salary and wage pressure as competition for providers, especially nurses and other mid-level providers grows. So those two things combined, as you might expect, is very much squeezing operating margins across the industry. And I think we do expect that to continue. 
What we've seen over the last few years, particularly with healthy investment markets, is that non-operating returns have offset some of this. And so debt service coverage remains reasonably healthy and overall cash flow is, is fairly strong. I think the red flag or something to be concerned about as we look into 2019 is the fact that investment markets may slow. We've seen a downturn just over the last few months, and I think there is some concern that we're not going to see the kind of investment returns we have historically or certainly over the last few years, which would both affect liquidity, as we've talked about. You know, We might see slower growth in days cash on hand, but also will affect cash flow as those investment returns are going to decline and may no longer be able to offset the fact that operating margins are getting weaker. So let's shift and talk a little bit more about 2019. I'm assuming that you're well underway in terms of uh, of looking at your outlook for next year. We've talked about a few issues. Any other thoughts um, about what you're seeing for 2019? I You had mentioned briefly in the 2018 outlook about the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and uh, also the removal of advanced refundings. What are we seeing kind of in those areas and any other areas in 2019? So as I mentioned, I think we'll continue to see softening operating margins. I think the challenges that we're seeing across the industry will not abate and competition is becoming more fierce every day. You know, these non-traditional providers are coming in and there are just more places than ever, as you alluded to, for people to get some of the services that they have traditionally received at hospitals. So that continues to be a challenge. And I think we expect operations to continue to be difficult. Uh, merger and acquisition activity is likely to slow somewhat. Uh, partly because there are just some markets where there's no one left. Uh, there's there's not any further players or any further mergers that can take place. But right. there are certainly still plenty of small hospitals that will continue to struggle, and many of them may seek partners in, in these larger systems, and they need that support from kind of a larger scale provider. So maybe some slowed on an M&A, but I think we do expect it to continue. Um, and then from a, a the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, from that perspective, uh, advanced refundings are gone. They're no longer legal, except in cases of mergers and acquisitions. For the first six months after a merger acquisition, you can do a tax-exempt refunding to consolidate debt. Uh, so leading up to that in late 2017, we saw a flurry of issuance from you know players concerned that there would be no tax-exempt funding at all. And that fortunately turned out not to be the case. But we did see a fairly slow pace of issuance in early 2018 since Many people accelerated those plans and, and went ahead in late 2017, although things have picked up later in the year. Uh, going forward, I think we've started to see some less traditional or different debt structures as a response to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Uh, we're seeing more taxable refundings or taxable debt issuances generally. Uh, that market continues to mature. And then variable rate debt structures have also become more popular. So some changes in the, uh, the structure of the debt we're seeing issued, which I think is somewhat a response to that Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Interesting. And the only thing I would add, well, Joel, is, you know, we, uh, you know, I agree with everything Allison said on on trends that we expect to continue, and we are in the phase now of evaluating the data in preparation for the launch of our 2019 outlook, and that'll be coming in in early early 2019. So uh, be on the lookout. Okay. Well, great. Well, before I let you guys go, I, whenever I get the chance to talk with somebody who's an expert in their particular field, I just love to hear how they came to, to be at their current position. Allison, uh, curious how you came to be sort of in, in, in the, the public finance world and also in, in particular in the healthcare sector. 
Right. So my undergraduate degree was in public policy. I've always been very interested in in policy and sort of the nature of the public sector. And I worked briefly after college for the city of Chicago and then in finance for a large private university. So really started to get some experience in the the not-for-profit sector. Uh, During that time, I was also volunteering extensively in hospitals and got really interested in the business of hospitals and how hospitals operate. So I ultimately went to graduate school and got a degree in health policy and administration. And I've been at S&P ever since. And I, I really became interested in the intersection of healthcare policy and business and and hospitals sit really nicely at that intersection. So this has been a great, a great role for me to learn about that world. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you. Well, thanks again, Allison. And and Ken, I I was looking at your bio. I saw that you uh, had a background working at a health system uh, in the past in Pennsylvania. Tell me about that and how you came to, to S and P. Yeah, sure. So I've been in healthcare for a long time, over, over 15 years in uh, different capacities, different sides of the table. My first job out of undergrad was working as a financial analyst for uh, the Connemaw Health System in Western Pennsylvania. I worked there for about five years uh, in the finance area, went back to grad school, uh, got my MBA, and realized that, you know, I really, really enjoyed healthcare, the dynamic nature of the operating environment. And, um, you know, decided that I would I would continue in the sector. But on a different side, I got into healthcare consulting, doing strategy, uh, strategy consulting, reimbursement consulting, some feasibility studies. And um, that got me uh, to the point where, you know, I started to interact more with the, the rating agencies and the opportunity came up with S&P about 10 years ago. And uh I was thrilled to join the the not for profit team as the not for profit healthcare team as an analyst and have been here for for ten years and pleased to say I now have the opportunity to to lead the, a great team of of analysts uh, covering the evolution of our our healthcare operating environment. So um, so it's been a, a great journey and we still have a lot of exciting times to to come in our healthcare world. You're, yep, you're absolutely right. We do. Um, well, before uh, I let you go, is there where can people go to to learn more? Um, you know, maybe, is there a subscription list or otherwise? Where can other people access your 2019 outlook when that is released? I would encourage people to visit our website, which is spratings.com/healthcare. And that website is great because it provides a combination of materials from our team, not-for-profit healthcare as well as our for-profit team, which includes for-profit hospitals, medical devices, and pharmaceuticals, as well as our insurance team, which covers the insurance industry. So it's a really nice marriage of materials from all three of our groups. And it also includes recordings of webcasts that we've done over the last year, announcements of events that we host. We do host a few events around the country every year, and I would encourage people to attend if that is of interest to them, as well as articles that we've published, uh, both Sector Outlooks, The Medians, and other sort of subject-specific articles about the healthcare industry. So that's spratings.com slash healthcare for, uh, for all your healthcare needs. Great. Well, Ken and Allison, thanks again for joining me. Thank you so Thank much you. for having us. And if you liked what you heard on this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes. And if you're interested in additional content from Hall Render, uh, we, uh, you can send me an email at jswider at hallrender.com, J-S-W-I-D-E-R at hallrender.com to subscribe to our monthly newsletter. Thanks again. <music>